So tonight, uh, not only do I get to start off a new series that we're in, and it's the first weekly worship gathering of 2020, I get to let you in on one of my favorite moments in all of pop culture. Why are you guys all surprised and angry? It was like <laughs> angst. I didn't say election. I said pop culture. And so my guilty pleasure, as you can ask any of the staff, my guilty pleasure is late 90s, early 2000s what? R&B. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Like every time, we're, every time we're going to minister's retreat, mission trip, Sikkim. I mean, I'll be honest, it's mostly the edited stuff, but I'm all about late 90s, early 2000s R&B and hip-hop. Am I lying, Jolene? That's right, it's true. Great. <laughs> Jolene and I found out early on in our staff relationship that like, we have this soft spot for breakup songs in the hip-hop genre, and so for hours, we're just listening to them, praying over each other, listening to them, and it gets weird, but it's a great memory, you know? So one of my favorite songs within that genre is a song by Jadakiss featuring Anthony Hamilton called Why. Three people know what it is. I'm going to walk the rest of you through this. We're not going to play it. That would be an idea I was tempted to do. I will absolutely never sing ever. Notice why my table is usually empty at weekly worship because I sing. So yeah. So this is my favorite song within the genre. Because it's basically a series of about 36 questions that start with why. And so Jadakiss is asking these questions, and then Anthony Hamilton in the chorus or in the bridge is kind of responding one answer to all of these questions. And so lyrically, it's maybe not the most interesting song, but structurally, it's kind of unique or novel. And so some of the questions that he asks um, that I really kind of think are interesting to think about. Uh, he talks about like, why can people in the prison system no longer get degrees? Or why did Aaliyah have to take the flight that ended her life? And he's kind of talking through this trauma of his inner city experience and asking questions. He's talking about, well, how come Michael Jordan became so famous, but somebody from up north would never have the opportunity? So he's, he's like, why did the Terminator win the election? I mean, he's going all out. He's asking all the questions we were afraid to ask. One of my favorites, and he asked towards the end of the song, is, why aren't you a thug by choice? And so he's talking about this reality of injustice, and it's kind of so fast and so quick, but I absolutely love this song. And I love this song because it brings us to this idea of questions. And depending on how you were brought up, whether it's related to your culture or your religion or your family of origins, you probably, like me, have an interesting relationship with the idea of questions. Maybe for you, asking questions was encouraged at home as a kid or in your elementary school, or maybe questions were off the table. Maybe you grew up in a fundamentalist-ish home like I did, and questions weren't really seen as like a positive thing to bring to the table. Instead, they could be substituted with a yes, sir, or no, ma'am. But I love this idea of this song because it reminds me that questions are important. Whether in education or in faith, in getting to know people or engaged in community, questions play a vital role in our lives and in our stories. And I was thinking about some of the biggest questions that were being asked in the Old Testament or the first half of the Bible. And it's interesting to read that in the Psalms, David, one of the original authors, he's writing these hymns of worship, and he asks questions, and sometimes his questions of God seem sharp or seem uh, hostile. But God seems to kind of meet him in that. 
But then you kind of turn a few pages later and you're in a wisdom literature book of Job. And Job asked some questions of God and Job's had a tough life, not of his own making, unlike David. And then Job seems to get the cold shoulder from God. Job's like, why is this happening? Why did I lose everything? And God's like, hey, where were you when I created everything? So it's like, oh, that was a non-starter. And so why is God's reaction different, even within the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant, from David and Job? And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. Because you know this as much as I do. Sometimes we ask questions to make a statement, and sometimes we ask questions to gain understanding. There's a difference, right? There's, there's such thing as having a critical mind, but there's also such thing as having a critical spirit. <laughs> kind of depends on what is the lens that we view life. Are we looking for things that are right to affirm, or are we looking for things that are wrong to point out? David is problematic as they come in the Old Testament. But the scandalous nature of grace is that God sees his heart and decides to engage in the mess with him. Whereas Job, on the other hand, is asking hard questions, but he's really making statements about God's character instead of trying to discover who God really is. So we really have to define this for ourselves. As we ask questions of each other, of God, and of Scripture, we have to talk about the motivation. Are we asking the question so that we can make a statement about what we already believe? Or are we asking a question so that we can grow and so that we can learn? And I don't know about you, but as a type A planner person who needs songs to remind me to slow down, I have to remember that there's a big difference between the motivation for something or the why and the how to do something and the mechanics. Sometimes I think we can get so caught up in how we do something, we don't realize that we aren't even doing the right things. Let me kind of bring this into what it looks like for me. A few semesters ago, another campus minister who who works at DC schools um, paid a compliment to Chi Alpha. Um, We don't get many, but he paid a compliment to Chi Alpha, and he was like, you guys are the best in the city at blank. So I took it back to the staff. I was like, guys, guess what? This other campus minister, he's been here for 10 years. He thinks we're the best in the city at blank. And it was a great moment. We felt good for a little bit. And then we're like, but do we exist for blank? Is blank our mission? Is that our goal? Like, are, are we acing a test in the class we haven't registered for? Like, are we succeeding but not at the right things? Are we excelling but not in the areas that we're called to. I was thinking about this uh, when Jolene and I were recently at a service for one of our strategic church partners in Bowie, Maryland, of all places. And it was a Saturday. There was about 30 people around. Um, It was wet and rainy and cold. And one of my favorite missionaries of all time, David Grant, who started Project Rescue, he gets up and he starts thanking all of us for being there. He's like, man, you guys made it. It's like a Sunday service on a Saturday. It's rainy, but you made it. And I'm getting hyped up, right? This missionary is like talking this up. He's like, you're awesome. You showed up. And then I love what he does. He just pauses and says, but this should be normal for believers. You're not that unique. You had a car. You got here. So thanks for being here, but you're not that special. I was like, oh my gosh. I felt affirmed and then slapped in the face. I was like, is this what care fronting really feels like? And it was interesting that he was drawing out this idea that following Jesus isn't for extraordinary people, but for ordinary people with an extraordinary God. He was kind of throwing some shade at this idea that we're unique or special in what God's asking us, 
but he's always asked this from people that love him and care for him. I was about to applaud myself for faithfulness, but David Grant reminded me that I don't come to church or to service to think of my own faithfulness and good deeds, but to think of God's faithfulness. Sometimes I'll sing the worship songs about God, but give myself the credit. Do you guys ever do that? There's three of us in here on this. That's super cool. So I do that all the time, right? Like I'll show up and I'll sing and I'm singing to God, but I'm kind of wanting like some credit. So I'm really singing like me and God. And then it becomes like really about me and it's kind of featuring God. And then it's kind of just like kind of produces the track and it's really about Blaine. And so what I was reminded of when we were at this church is that there should be a normal set of practices or beliefs for those that believe an incredible God. And sometimes we sell ourselves short when we assume that only that missionary or that pastor or that life group leader is kind of living all out for the gospel when Jesus calls us all into that. In other ways, there's not really a hierarchy in heaven. Like we're all invited into a deep closeness with Jesus. I want to read about it in Hebrews. It's one of our main texts for tonight. And we're in Hebrews 10, I believe. And here's what it says in verse 19. By the way, I think we could start calling it Shebrews and not Hebrews because I'm pretty convinced Junior wrote it, but we'll talk about that another time. That was just free for the ladies in here. So Hebrews, it's under the heading, A Call to Persevere in Faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It seems to me that the author of Hebrews, she or he, mostly she, is saying the farther along we go in our faith, the more encouragement we're going to need to hold on to the hope of Christ. That's like the opposite of training wheels in a bicycle, right? Where you need some assistance, you're yelling, your dad's yelling at you, you're dealing with the crisis, you have to process it in therapy later, that's my story of learning how to ride a bike, and then you kind of, the the training wheels are off and they never come back on. But this passage is actually saying the exact opposite. It's saying, remember what God has done, show up with the full assurance, so you don't have to show up like scared or timid that you don't belong but then it's saying don't give up meeting together which is interesting this is written probably 80 years after jesus resurrected and people are already tired of christian community and they're saying actually you need more encouragement to live for jesus the more time goes on in other ways i think what this text is telling me and possibly might be telling you is that sometimes we're in a place that we would call contentment that the lord would call complacency That sometimes we think that we're in our lane, but we're really just living off of what God did yesterday or what God did through our friend. Uh, My pastor and mentor, Chris, he talks about uh, secondhand Jesus. It's kind of like secondhand smoke. Like you just get it by being around the right people, but it's it's not really that beneficial. It's not that great. Um, I heard it uh, recently again with Jolene and I heard it all growing up. So maybe you've already heard this, but but someone talked about, man, if you are a part of a community like this or a part of a life group, there's a real danger in being a part of Christian things. 
The danger is that you would become vaccinated to the true power of Jesus. That you would have just enough of Jesus to scratch that itch, but not enough of Jesus to make it through the hard times. In other words, maybe there are some of us that we're kind of in this lukewarm state. And the book of Revelation, which is a weird book about this trippy dream that happened with a guy in exile on an island. Don't sign up for that mission trip. He's saying it's actually better to be all hot or all cold that if you're lukewarm, you're going to be like vomited out. It's a very visceral image. And my pastor, Mark, says it like this. Some of us have a little bit of Jesus, but not enough to fully delight in him. And some of us still have one foot in the world or the ways of the world. But, we ha- but it doesn't lead to an enjoyment of the world, but just to shame and difficulty. So I think a lot of us in a new year, arguably a new decade, depends who you talk to, we're trying to figure out where are we going from here? And what John from the island of Patmos would be saying to you, what the author of Hebrews would be saying to me and you is this, we have to choose what direction we're going to go. That it's better to go 100% right or 100% left than swerving between the two. And I know that's true because I feel like I was raised in the situation of spiritual whiplash. Where in high school, I feel like, man, when I was at youth group, when I was with my youth pastor, things were great. Me and Jesus, we were awesome. But then I was making other decisions on the weekend that didn't necessarily represent Jesus well. Shocker, right? Oh my gosh. Plane's not perfect. Wow. If you've been around and not realized that, your eyes have been closed this whole time. Okay, shouldn't be that much laughing, but whatever. German, loved having you on staff. Here's our next passage that I think continues this conversation for us about our journey and the role of questions. And I believe that we're, if you put on the screens, I think that we're in 1 John. Yes, 2.15 through 17. I did. Wow. Words have power. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There are passages like this in Scripture that are so simple and so easy to understand, we're only left with two options, to read and obey or to read and disobey. A lot of us get hung up on the gray areas of scripture or when something's not clearly stated or we have to dig through kind of cultural expectations or historical times, but this is not one of those moments. This passage is speaking clearly from 2,000 years ago, reminding us, That if we are God's, if we're a part of his family, that our relationship to the world around us should change. Other people in scripture talk about being in the world, but not of the world. That there's this connection between our citizenship of the kingdom or of heaven, and then our citizenship in whatever country we reside in. But that the order is important. And Jesus, one of his most radical ideas, was that we should prioritize our spiritual citizenry instead of our physical or country or nationalism. That's both interesting and difficult to do when things are good in the country and when things are bad in the country. When whoever you wanted to be president is in, that's a little harder maybe. Or maybe you're like, man, the world is chaos. I want to cling on to Jesus. But the reality that we're being faced with in these texts is this, is that we are called to live differently. We are called to live against 
the current. And maybe you're asking, much like Jadakiss asked, why? Why does Jesus seem so loving yet care so deeply about sin? Why does Jesus come onto the scene and and live a perfect life and then die and resurrect, but then still cares about the choices that we make in our daily lives? Well, the reality is this, is that God has a pattern for the way that he works. God always wants to involve people in redeeming other people. In the Old Testament, we see that through the Israelites, and then we see a more universal perspective in the New Testament. That God doesn't want to just rescue people on his own. He wants to rescue people with other people. It's like the greatest and messiest group project that was ever invented. And what's interesting is that we are being called back to what we were meant to be. We live in a very individualistic, ladder climbing, I'm better than the person next to me, I know five languages and got the internship, you didn't culture. But that is not the culture we were designed for. Stanley Grentz in his book, Theology for the Community of God, says this. He says that in Genesis, we see the Godhead, Father, Spirit, and Son, the Trinity all creating together. There's a plurality of creation. And that we're being invited into that, which means that God is in himself community and that community in itself is divine. That every conversation has spiritual undertones. And so in some ways in this series, we're saying you should live against the current of whatever culture offers you. But we're also saying that living against the current is a return to who you were meant to be. The challenging thing about being created is recognizing that you can be creative, but you're not the creator. Isaiah says it like this, that God's ways are higher, that his thinking is so different, that he is so much more magnificent than we can even imagine. For me, the hardest part about the gospel is giving up control of my own story. I've heard it said like this, that, man, the gift of grace and the good news is free, but it will cost you everything. And it's true, right? If you're doing it right, there should be some cost to it. 90% of the apostles lived their life and then gave themselves as martyrs when the time came. Because they were convinced that they'd received a free gift, but that when you take care of something precious, it often costs you something. Now, it's interesting because some of us who grew up in church tradition... I think that we might major too much on this idea that if it's hard, it must be God. If it's challenging, it must be from him. And we need to walk in the delight of who he is. But others of us have maybe grown up in the opposite stream or in the opposite way where a fear of legalism has led us to lawlessness that's empty. And we need to find that there is trust in a father who gives good discipline. That we can look at him regardless of what our earthly experience was with a parent or authority figure. That we can trust that if we are created by him, that he knows what's best for us. Matt Chandler says it like this, and I think it's key for us to really grapple with. He says that you can never make Jesus cool enough for everyone to accept him. And it's this idea that we spend a lot of time as pastors or as life group leaders. We want to present who Jesus is and give people the best shot, but we got to be honest. The gospel is hard. The Bible is weird and strange. And this idea of having hope and faith in sometimes an unseen God is difficult. But what I love about each story in the gospels 
is that not only are we encouraged to count the cost by Jesus, but we're told that it's absolutely worth it. I remember a mentor of mine, Mike, would say it like this. He says, when we decide to surrender our future, our hopes, and our sins, and then in this beautiful exchange, we get a new future, new hope, and forgiveness of sins from Jesus, that if we've really grappled with it, we recognize that we've got the better end of the deal. I remember my college roommate, we grew up in Chi Alpha at the University of Alabama. I think it was our junior year, and I don't know, we were just having a conversation, and somehow it got a little bit serious. And he asked the question, if you didn't know Jesus, Blaine, how, would you live your life differently, morally? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I thought that's what he was going to say. I was like, well, so Josh, like, if you didn't know Jesus, would you live any differently? He's like, nope, I'd live the same. And at first I felt like really bad about myself. Like I was supposed to be the life group leader. I was like, dude, I would do crazy stuff. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm trying to be the same nice guy. And I was like, well, that's an awkward conversation ender. But as I look back on that conversation that I somehow remember eight years later, is that unfortunately Josh was saying that the role of Jesus in his life didn't change him. That he loved Jesus, that maybe he believed in Jesus, but he didn't necessarily trust Jesus. Craig Rochelle talks about it as being a practical atheist, that we say we believe, but we don't act like we believe. That our faith becomes real and incarnate and special on Sundays, but that it doesn't change how we live Monday through Friday. I think that if we're really honest, a lot of us are doing our best to prioritize faith. What's interesting about the gospel is that it invites us into a journey that we can't do on our own. That's why Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving. I'm resurrected. Things are good. I'm going back home to heaven, and I want to give you the Holy Spirit, a helper, an advocate. I hope that if you and I had that awkward conversation that Josh and I had, not that I would hear about how wild and crazy you would live, but that at the heart of it, you'd recognize that if you're truly following Jesus, it should change how you live your life. I've been thinking about my own story, kind of, as we transition to a new year. And one thing that I realized is this. When I am hungry for the approval of others, for the affirmation of those around me, for the compliments of those nearby, for me, that's usually when I haven't been rooted in who God says I am. Like, we're all looking for validation somewhere. The gospel is just pointing us that Jesus is the validation. But I think that you know this as well as I do. The culture around you can validate you in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. What's interesting about living against the current is that it's not just living against the bad things, but it's also living against the good or temporary things. Jim Collins, in his business book, Good to Great, he says of every great company, they recognize that the enemy to great isn't bad, but good. There are things that are being spoken into your life, into your story from well-meaning parents, professors, internship directors, and you have to decide what voice will you listen to? Whose voice will you respond to? Proverbs 8 and 10, another kind of section of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, gives us a, an image of two women. And basically it's wisdom personified and folly and lust personified. And what's interesting in Proverbs 8 through 10 is both of them are calling. But the woman of wisdom is inviting, whereas the woman of lust or folly is enticing. And Solomon is basically saying... One of them will give you pleasure in eternity, and one will give you pleasure temporarily. 
And so as you and I are navigating through life, I don't think my fear for you is that you would make an evil decision. My fear for you is that you would settle with something good and not something that God's asked you to do. My greatest fear for students at our campuses isn't that you would accidentally slip into worshiping Satan, probably not going to happen, but instead that you would find yourself in a comfortable relationship with Jesus where he never disagrees with you, always thinks that you're right, and then you never live a life of risk or faith. I never understood when I was in Chi Alpha why there was other people in Chi Alpha that would spend an hour, hour and a half, two hours with Jesus a day. I thought it was like a waste of time. I'm like, guys... Get out of your prayer closets. Let's go have some fun. Let's go reach the world. What are you guys doing? How can you pray that long? And then I realized that I wasn't living a life that necessitated that much time with Jesus. That I wasn't witnessing where I needed that witness. That I wasn't living a life full of risk and relationship. I wasn't pursuing anybody. I wasn't sharing the gospel. So I didn't need that foundation. They needed that foundation because they started there and went out, whereas I was trying to start out here and then work it back internally. Does that make sense? German's been there. Thank you for being honest, man. I always preach better when he's right there. I'm going to have him come to my living room for devotionals in the morning. Hey, I want us to just take a few minutes and discuss a few questions at our tables as we're about three-fourths of the way through our teaching time. And so here are the questions. Maybe you want to write them down or you have a great memory. That's cool, too. When you think of... Living against the current, what comes to mind? So that's the first question you'll talk about at your table. And the second one is this. Are you a question asker by nature? And what has been your relationship with questions? So the first one, I'll repeat it, is when you think of living against the current, what comes to mind? And the second question is, are you a question asker by nature? And what's been your relationship with asking questions? So you have about three or four minutes. If you don't know the people at your table, Give them your name and what campus you're at. And then I'll hear from a few people in a minute and then we'll close out our teaching time. Go for it. All right, I'd love to hear from a few tables. The first question was, when you think of living against the current, what comes to mind? And the second question is, are you a question asker by nature? What's been your relationship with questions? So first question, what do you think of when you think about living against the current? I'd love to have two tables, maybe share, force someone to share. Sometimes people call it peer pressure, I call it discipleship, but whatever. I think Nicole said something so well that she needs to say it herself. Wow. Wow. Classic Ife. Ife always volunteers to put others on the spot. So if you're looking for a life group, there's one there. So, yeah. Boom, she brews, that's right. <laughs> that's also really interesting connected to the text because one of the most imperative, positive commands in the New Testament is the phrase stand firm. 
which makes a lot more sense in light of your explanation, which I should have stolen and said in my sermon. Who's next over here? Did this table volunteer? No one volunteers as tribute. So, okay. Any other tables that are more open to learning about Jesus tonight? (laughs) Close to the altar, far from God. Totally cool. I've been there. That's been my testimony. Hey, I've been there. That's my story. I've been there. I've been there. That's cool. That's cool. Anybody? Nobody? Thank you. Thank you for bailing me out. Ooh. Uh, it's something you have to like choose to do. Like it seems hard when you have to go against it. And someone else also mentioned how um, that a- an animal that goes against the current famously is the salmon. And fish. But something the salmon and Lee was saying how the salmon must have a very passionate goal and have a lot of passion in order to go against the current that you need to have a good goal and be very almost stubborn at times. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It does seem like the apostles in particular live out of a place of holy stubbornness. Like Jesus and John the Baptist, for instance, they're both living counterculturally. People don't like Jesus because he provides too much free wine and hangs out with sinners. But then people are mad at John for being a separatist. Like no one's happy. <laughs> It's like, it kind of reminds me that if we're living from a place of holy stubbornness, we'll never be able to please everyone. Yeah. And I'm going to feel really guilty for eating salmon tomorrow, so thanks for that. <laughs> Another table or two? Hey, man. So, uh, my mind also went to the beach. Uh, like, it's really cold that I missed the beach. But also, <laughs> uh, when, when you're, like, hit by a current, like, if you're swimming in the ocean, you're, like, supposed to It's empowering, isn't it? The snaps? The more snaps, the longer I go. Now you know my secrets. Love that humility, German. Thank you. <laughs> Such a model. Maybe one more table on either of those. Maybe especially the second question. Like, what's been your relationship with questions? Was that something you're given permission to do? Okay. You're like praise handing over there. Are you okay? That's not the Holy Spirit. That's just awkwardness. No, it's just me. I got the inspiration from our lovely Nicole at our table. This is the Battle of Nicole? What's going on? Wow. This is like the moment where I say, guys, we can only have one Nicole in the campus ministry, and whatever you say next is who stays. Just kidding. We can have two Nicoles. Just kidding. And so trying to make sure that, like, 
I stay away from that and making sure that um, I stay like um, in, I guess like where I want to be um, and not getting into uh, a situation I don't necessarily mm. want to be in. Uh, Nicole also mentioned like making sure that you like uplift people and like what what are you saying today? What are your words saying? What are your actions saying? And like taking a minute to really stop and like think about what you're doing before you do it. Um, which are like two very practical things that we sometimes I think forget to do when we're just kind of going along with it or, or going throughout our daily lives. Um, is like making sure not only that we're placing ourselves against the current, but like like what Nicole said, kind of actively mm. thinking about it, and that maybe requires doing actions in your daily life that mm. you would normally not do otherwise if you weren't a follower of Jesus. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It reminds me of this idea that an old dead guy theologian said, um, "You you don't break God's laws." when you, you break yourself against God's laws. Like, in other words, that we think we can violate the principles of the Bible or of Scripture, but we end up finding ourselves broken and hurt and violated. And so when we ask the question, what is sin, or, 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 or how do we define it, I think we're thinking through what leaves us whole. Holiness starts with us being whole. And in the New Testament, holiness is this idea of being set apart, being different, making that conscious effort to adjust against the tide. And the really interesting thing as the worship band comes up, I want you to consider is that you're not just facing the tide or the current of the political climate, of polarized society, of your parental expectations, of your institutional and academic obligations. It gets a little trickier. You're also being fed a narrative by ministry, by church, by pastors that you have to discern, is this really what Jesus said? Is this really where I should go? I'm reading this book called Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry because I'm bad at that. And the person in the book talks about sometimes we trade in all of our secular distractions for ministry distractions and we still haven't found Jesus. That we erase our calendar for all of the foolish and evil stuff and we replace it with other stuff, but we're not getting more time with God. I realized a long time ago that in certain seasons of my life, the way I was doing the ministry of the Lord was preventing the Holy Spirit to do ministry in me. At some point, my role, your role in a life group, leading a life group, sharing the gospel with those around you, the fact that you know Jesus should make your life better. Not easier, often harder. But there should be a depth of joy, a depth of reality And remember, he's not asking you to be something brand new. He's asking you to return to who he made you. It may not feel comfortable, but it's a return to what is normal in his eyes. And I think that if I talk to every one of you here, you would not want to accept the culture's definition for normal for your story. You would agree that there is something lacking in what the world is offering. So tonight as we pray and sing another song in reflection, maybe you need to stand, maybe you need to kneel down, maybe you need to find a life group leader or grab a prayer card. But the question is this, are there areas of my life where I still need to surrender? And have I intentionally and deliberately gone all in with Jesus? It's my hope that tonight, 
that through this text, you've gotten a better picture of all that God has for you. Because the reality is this, when God wants more from you, it's because he wants more for you. When God asks something, he's not just asking you to give it up, he's asking you so you can put something else better in your hands. So why don't we stand and I'll lead us in a prayer and we'll sing and respond. God, I pray in my own life, there are things that as I was preparing this week that that you brought up, areas of my own plans and expectations that seem good, but aren't necessarily in line with you. God, I pray I'd be open-handed. God, I pray that where I have hurts and wounds, may I remember your faithfulness and your goodness. And God, may I resist the temptation to take the path that's easy, the path that seems simple, but may I find you in difficulty, may I find you when I'm uncomfortable, and may I find you in complexity. In your name, amen. Let's respond together.